All right. Well, let's uh, get back to our study. We are, as I introduced last week, we're kind of moving into this more of a, a subject matter study in Proverbs, taking different big themes or ideas or categories of emphasis that you find throughout the book of Proverbs that are of really a particular practical nature. They're very helpful. Um, nothing, nothing that we're going to cover in these um, sort of subject matter studies, that it, this is the way that you find Proverbs. It's, um, it's insight that is, on the face of it, pretty obvious. Um, it's in really the application of it that is the hard part for us, just like any other biblical truth. But today we're going to continue on under this category of wor- uh, wisdom and words. We're going to kind of take another step in our study there. And again, as I mentioned last week, I'm kind of following um, the outline that Derek Kidner produced um, in his little, little short commentary on um, the book of Proverbs. I found it to be particularly helpful and and clear, and so um, he's kind of serving as a bit of a, a help to me in this. Um, and the way that he broke down this section on wisdom and words is how we started last week with the power of words. And of course, we looked last week at this subject of the power of words, and we looked at a range of texts from Proverbs that highlight this. Um, of course, the umbrella verse that you could turn to is Proverbs 18.21, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so that just gives us this vivid sort of metaphor for the power of our words in that it, it ascribes to our words both the power of death and life. And of course, we built that out. We talked about the penetration of our words, how the wor- words can either penetrate us in a fruitful or a hurtful way, or the way that our words sort of ruminate within us in our thoughts and how we, what we meditate upon what informs our thinking, what shapes us and stirs our emotions, these, these things that we think about, these words, maybe it's words that have been spoken to us, maybe it's words that we've read, maybe it's words of encouragement, maybe it's words of insult, whatever it might be, but these words in their power can penetrate us and they can have an effect on our thinking and ultimately on our actions and they can ultimately produce through us beneficial, fruitful work that's honorable to the Lord, or it can produce destructive work. These words can ultimately accomplish through us as, they, as we allow them to shape our thinking. And uh, so we looked at a variety of passages in Proverbs that talk about this and the penetration of words, how they affect our attitudes. They can affect our attitudes toward other people. Um, we looked at that passage that talks about the whispers that we can listen to. They're like delicious morsels. And so this idea of someone kind of getting in our ear with maybe gossip or slander for someone else, and that all of a sudden shaping our attitude towards someone that we may not even really know. But all of a sudden we've developed kind of an opinion of them based upon our listening to these whispers. We can have our view of ourselves inflated by flattery. People constantly complimenting us and, and really flattering us beyond what is genuine or sincere. And we can begin to, as they say, uh, begin to believe our own press, uh, begin to read our own press and believe it too much, and begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And so this is another indication of the power of words within us. There's also this, this idea of the spread of words when you're thinking about, about its power. We talked about that and how... Our words or words of others can, can implant ideas in people. 
And those ideas can have good effect or ill effect in the same way that the words that penetrate into our own hearts. We can spread words that have the same effect on others. And we talked about a couple of, we kind of gave a couple of illustrations of this spread of words. We talked about the Word of Faith movement as a basic uh, movement in Christendom that really seizes upon the, really the, the abuse or the manipula- manipulation of words, and more specifically, the words of Scripture, and uh, to basically name and claim that you, you are entitled to health, wealth, and prosperity. And really, it becomes uh, a movement, has become a movement that preys upon people who are the most desperate of conditions, generally speaking. And then we also looked at Psalm 19 as this great example of how the Word of God can have a tremendous effect, both in its penetration and in its spread, and how in Psalm 19 you see that it revives the soul, that it makes the, wise, it makes, uh, the simple wise, it rejoices the heart, brings delight to the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it, it pr- pr- produces enlightenment to people, for people to see things clearly and provides perspective, that it's eternal and it endures forever in righteousness, and that it also is, is something that warns us and it rewards us. It rewards God's people and it warns God's people. So the point is, is that, God, that the, the words that we speak, the words that we read, the words that we listen to, the words that we think about, whether they're words of truth from God's word or whether they're just words in the public sphere, whatever it might be, they are powerful. And they're powerful on the in- inside of us and they're powerful as we distribute them or disseminate them. But today, we kind of, produce, we kind of walk into or step into sort of the counterbalance to that idea because words are not all powerful. Um, there's no need to overstate their power or to um, allow uh, the idea of the power of words to cause us to be somehow paralyzed in our thinking of things or in our speaking of things. Um, and also to recognize that words have limitations in what they can do or accomplish. And that's, that's the next section of this little outline that we're using. While words are powerful, they have limits. And Proverbs highlights some of those limits that words have. So the first in the little list here that Proverbs would draw our attention to is that words are no substitute for deeds. Never are words to be a substitute for actual deeds, for actual action. Proverbs 14.23 provides a real succinct balance to our first section when we looked at the power of words. It says this, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. So you have this contrast or this dichotomy that's set up by the writer of Proverbs here between setting your hand to work, doing something, stepping into action as being profitable, but just words about doing something, speaking about what you're going to do or accomplish, is only going to lead to poverty. And really, the the verse itself kind of highlights what we know to be axiomatically true. If we just think about this for a moment, I think we would all agree and actually probably all have to confess to this reality that, that inaction, even at times our own inaction, is rarely accompanied by silence, right? Our decisions to not take action, 
to not move forward in some way, to not step into some matter that we probably need to step into, rarely are those moments or periods of inaction, rarely are they accompanied by just silence. In fact, most of the time, they're accompanied by rationalizations, excuses, justifications for not taking a step or not following an obedience in some particular way. Oftentimes, our inaction is accompanied by or really in ways can reveal our presumption, especially the words that we might speak at the same time that we're failing to act. Um, we, can have, we can be guilty of presumption, and we can procrastinate in a very arrogant kind of way. James chapter 4, I think, gives a great uh, summary of this, a kind of a great illustration of this. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, probably a familiar passage to, to all of us. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Verse 14, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, listen to this, verse 16 and 17, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. In verse 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So James gives this brilliant picture of the person who has lots of words about what they're going to do today or tomorrow. There's, there's a boastful presumption in the words that are being spoken, but he closes out this section by saying those words are not accompanied by action. There is a failure to know the right thing and not do it, and there's a call out that that is sin. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So there's a presumption on the reliability or existence of the opportunity, namely that somehow we know the future. We know that we can not do something that we probably should do today. We, we, we know that we can do it tomorrow because we are presuming upon the future that we think we can guarantee. We, we think that we have some, some vision into that. So there's an arrogant presumption there. But then there's also this exhortation or even this rebuke for not taking action on the matters that are at hand today and substituting that action for presumptuous words. Boastful words that are all about what we intend to do are often just really a cover for our own inaction, are they not? And at the core, they often reveal what is nothing more than arrogance and presumption. We think we, we think we can wait because we think we know what our life and our time and our opportunities are going to look like later, and we don't. And that's why he says in James, what is your life? It's like a mist. In other words, wake up. This is reality. Your boastful arrogance, your pride, these words that you're speaking, that's, that's a dream. That's not real. So a great, a great illustration here of of highlighting this fact that words are no substitute for action. None at all. It makes me think of um, this conversation I had. I, I, if I've shared this illustration with you before, please forgive me, but it was, it was such a simple 
and yet penetrating profound moment in my life. Um, I was actually um, attending seminary at the Master's Seminary for a time out in California, and I was a part of a fellowship group, and Jerry Rag, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jerry Rag, he's in Florida now, expositors and all that, but he was, the, he was our fellowship group pastor, and he kind of discipled several of us who were small group leaders, and I was a young dad, um, my daughter Emily was maybe not quite two years old at the time, um, Brandon obviously wasn't born yet, and so we were this young family, and I was trying to figure out life and seminary and how we were going to afford to get through this and all these different things, and, and I was really struggling, um, you know, with, with just the demands and the responsibilities, and as many young husbands and fathers do, you just start to kind of feel overwhelmed, and so I went to meet with him one morning, and I started talking about how, you know, I mean, of course, he, he goes to those those tired old questions like, are you spending time in God's Word? I mean, really? You're going to ask me that now? But he starts asking me these questions, holding me accountable. Are you really spending time you know, in God's Word? Because probably, I'm sure, the way I was sounding, and I was sounding as though I didn't know who God was. Like, I was probably speaking in ways that would say, I don't even know who God is. Like, I don't even know who's in control here. You know, I'm sure that's the, express, the way I was expressing myself. And so he began to probe and ask me these questions, and so I begin to lament, well, you know, my daughter, she's, she wakes up so early, and then we have to spend some time kind of working with her, getting her ready, or playing with her, or whatever, and, and then I have to get ready for school or work. You know, I started lamenting the fact that, you know, you just can't imagine how difficult it is for me. And so, when, when he, so he seized upon this statement about how, Im, how early my daughter wakes up, and he just looked, looked at me after I kind of probably rambled on for a while, and he said, so, wake up earlier. That's what he said. Wake up earlier. And then he said, if you know that spending time in God's word is important, and if you know that your daughter is going to wake up early, guess what that means for you? You've got to wake up earlier. That was it. That was the counsel. But no, what I was doing is I was matching up all of my inaction with a mountain of words to justify, to rationalize, and to explain away why I couldn't just do the simplest thing right in front of me. It was a very powerful moment in my life to kind of sweep away all of the distraction of my own rationalizations and to really get to the bottom line. John MacArthur kind of had a similar sentiment where um, some seminary students were asking him, actually it might have been at a shepherd's conference, and they were asking him this question, you know, what do you think is one of the biggest keys for an effective preaching ministry? And in his statement was this. Um, he said, keep your rear end in the chair until you finish your work. Come out when you have something to say. So in other words, in the ministry of preaching, it's not uncommon for people to be looking for, just in any other endeavor, for people to be looking for shortcuts and ways to get at some effect, thinking that it's going to be something other than just putting your hand to the plow and tilling one row at a time, row after row. So Proverbs is saying, words, don't mistake them. There is no substitute for deeds. They are not a substitute for deeds. Never a substitute for putting your hand to the plow. Now, here's another thing about words. 
Words cannot alter facts. Words are no substitute for deeds, but they also cannot alter facts. Listen to this passage. In fact, why don't you go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 26. I found this to be so insightful and convicting and helpful all at the same time in thinking about this principle that words in their weakness are never able to alter the objective, inarguable facts of a matter. But look at Proverbs chapter 26, and we'll look at verses 23 to 28. It says, Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Note, note the vividness of that opening image. This, this idea or this image of glaze covering an earthen vessel. And that's the idea of words being uttered to shift the focus away from what's actually true. Or to sort of masterfully gloss over what is substantively real. When you think of the glaze that's put over an earthen vessel, it's, it, it's, it's to smooth it out and it's to soften its rough edges and it's to make it have a shine, a sheen to it, to make it look like something shiny through and through, but it's really not. And so these, this idea that we're given here at the very beginning in verse 23 is this idea of, of words, of, of lips that want to gloss over what is true, wants, wants to gloss over in a deceptive way what are inalterable facts. And then there's this real stark contrast between the words that are being spoken and what's real and what's true. Look in verses 24 to 26 and then again in verse 28. You see there these, this idea of gracious words being spoken. Verse 25, when he speaks graciously, believe him not. And then in verse uh, 26, well actually verse 24, uh, he disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. And then he speaks graciously. And then verse um, 28, a lying tongue hates his victims and a flattering mouth works its ruin. So you have this, this stark contrast between what's really going on and what's being uttered. So the gracious words that are being spoken, the listener, the reader is called to not believe them. So the words sound appealing in some way, but they're not. The words being spoken are... Deceptive. They're they're covered. They're covering over wicked intent or a wicked heart, is what Proverbs is saying. And of course, in verse twenty-five, and we talked about this several weeks ago, there is again this call for discernment here. Uh, verse twenty-five: When he speaks graciously, believe him not. In other words, the words that are being spoken are not truthful, but they're also not obviously untruthful. So there's a call for discernment here. They cannot alter what's true, but they certainly can sound true and ultimately deceive. So we need to be discerning. 
you can apply it, sir, in a lot of ways. Yeah. can be applied to all of us, probably, to one degree or another. Politics, what we see on the news. So you have this call for discernment here. And then you also have this ultimate outcome when the truth is revealed. Because, again, words can't alter facts. The truth is going to be known. So the ultimate outcome here is revealed in verse 26, through public exposure, though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. There is this trapping and burying by his own deceptive words in verse 27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. So it's this picture of the very words that are being uttered to deceive are going to end up digging a pit that the deceiver is going to fall into, and they're going to come back like a stone that they've started rolling. That stone's going to roll on top of them. So there's an outcome here that highlights this fact that you can't alter facts with flattering words, with persuasive words, with gracious words that at the core are deceptive. They're not true. There will be, they, they will come to light. They often crumble in onto the person who's weaving that web of deception. But look at verse 28. There are victims that can be taken in by the flattery and that can ultimately bring ruinous effect. A lying tongue hates hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Again, hearkening back to this call call for discernment, it's not as though we can't be led into deception and believing words that are not in alignment with what is true. And you think about this and how easily this can happen to us. We oftentimes want to hear, or we are like the, like the whisperer it talks about in Proverbs. They're like morsels. And so are we not, as a culture, sort of um, attracted to salacious gossip? Right? I mean, you think about what's covered on the news and you know, what gets the most ratings. Um, it's, not, you know, it's not just basic factual telling of the truth of a story. It has to be infused with something salacious, something nefarious, something sort of oriented toward gossip. And we get taken in by it. And so the call here is to recognize that words can't change what's true. I don't care how well they're spoken. You can go on and look at other Proverbs that talk about how even in the face of denials or in the face of offering up excuses, that can't alter what's true either. Proverbs 28, 24 says this, Whoever robs his father or his mother and says, That is no transgression, is a companion to a man who destroys. And then in verse 12 of chapter 24 in Proverbs, it says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So in other words, even in the face of all of our efforts to deny what is true, or to make excuses for not knowing what is true, It never alters or changes what is true and the impact of it and the potential judgment that we face for not living in the truth, in the light of the truth. Derek Kidner says it this way. 
The most impenetrable charm has, in the end, no chance against the facts which it disguises. And, to look to the end, the most brazen denials and strongest excuses will make no impression to the final judge. You can't change the facts. You can't change or alter reality. And yet, is it not indeed true that we convince ourselves of something different than what's actually true by our words? Those words that we think about. Even in, even in the context of counseling, think about how, um, if, if any of you have been involved in counseling someone or discipling someone over some period of time, especially someone who is really struggling in a particular area, they're really needing counsel, they're appealing to you for counsel and, and, and wanting that. Is it not indeed true that one of the things that they're probably laboring under is talking to themselves and convincing themselves of things that aren't actually true? They aren't actually attached to what is objectively real or transcendently true from God's Word. So we can all find ourselves being influenced by words that aren't true. And no matter how much we make excuses or no matter how fervent our denial, it doesn't change the truth. The truth is unchanging. It's another weakness of words. Here's another one. Words cannot compel a response. Words cannot compel a response. Proverbs 29, 19 says this. By mere words, a servant is not disciplined. For though he understands, he will not respond. This is why in Proverbs, you see the teacher, over and over again, trying to compel the listener or the student, the pupil, to value wisdom in and of himself and to pursue wisdom for its own value and benefit to him, himself. When you look at Proverbs chapter 2 as an example, there is an appeal there of the teacher to the pupil, value wisdom yourself. See it as akin to treasure, to precious silver, to precious jewels. Anything of genuine value, attach that kind of value to it in your own heart and in your own mind, and then pursue it with a passion and with a zeal. Why? Because no matter how persistently, no matter how articulately, no matter how compellingly, no matter how much proven experience is behind the words of the instruction, no words spoken in the, in the form of instruction or exhortation or rebuke can force an outcome of receptiveness, of submission and obedience. They can. Proverbs 17.10, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. Words do not have the power to compel a response. And so the point here is that our focus, this is what I like to tell parents and teachers and all that in my particular field, is that we, we are responsible for faithfulness on the input side. That's where our focus needs to be. As parents, we're called to be faithful in our instruction and training, but we can't guarantee outcomes. We do not have the ability or the power 
by the sheer clarity or persuasiveness of our words to guarantee an outcome or to compel some kind of response. We certainly increase the odds if we're faithful, but we can't compel it. That's why Proverbs on and on talks about how it's the wise who gain understanding. In other words, there's an implication of the presence of wisdom or the presence of a valuing of wisdom that multiplies itself in its pursuit and its receptivity and its application. The person who is open to instruction, who recognizes that they are not where they need to be, the person who recognizes that there are those who I need to listen to, they're wiser, they've experienced more, they understand God's word better, I I need to listen and be receptive. Those are people who are both characterized as wise and who ultimately receive instruction and become wiser all the more. Then you have those who are scoffers, who reject truth, who reject insight, who don't value it, and they resist it. And even though they might be in the presence of someone day and night who is consistently, faithfully, graciously, compellingly communicating truth to them, unless they are willing and open to respond to it, to receive it, and to apply it, a thousand words spoken perfectly will not make that happen. That's part of the weakness of words. I think that this goes to, uh, this, this should also inform our counseling and our discipleship and our evangelism. It should inform the ways in which we interact with people, especially when we are met with resistance to the truth. There are a couple of different possible outcomes here. If we believe that by sheer virtue of the power of our persuasion, the, 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 our, our, the knowledge that we have to weave together Scripture in such a compelling way and communicate it to someone, if we believe that that lies within us somehow or lies within our mastery of language and communication, then what happens when there's resistance? We can become discouraged, we can become frustrated, we can become agitated, even in our counsel or, in, or our conversations with people. Um, this has happened a lot. Uh, I've seen this happen a lot, and I probably was guilty of this at some point in my younger days, and maybe again sometime, I'm sure. But, but um, I've seen this more prominently when people are real passionate about Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace, and they're having a conversation with someone who is more... Arminian, more sort of free will oriented in terms of salvation and all that, can become very, very agitated and even begin to get, you know, you know almost uh, angry in their communication over arguments about doctrine because they put too much focus and emphasis on what they believe to be the power of their words. So we can become discouraged or we can become angry, we can ultimately become unfruitful in our interactions with other people if we don't recognize that words in and of themselves cannot compel a response in someone. Again, a call for discernment. If you're in a situation where someone is not responding to the truth and there's a persistent, gracious, kind, gentle, but clear effort that is undertaken to try and call them to repentance, to encourage them in the way, and they continue to rebuff and resist, discernment is needed, right? How are you going to respond? How am I going to respond to that? There's even a point where Jesus 
instructed those whom he sent out to do what when they didn't receive the message? Yeah. And so instead of going into the town and starting a riot, right, discernment would say they're not open to the message. So again, lots of, lots of practical application that we can draw from just this one principle that words have a weakness here. They cannot compel a response. Well, the exact opposite is also true here. Um, Proverbs 17.4 says this, An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. So in the same way that words spoken clearly in truth and powerfully cannot compel a response, um, it's also true that you have to be willing and open to be influenced by words that are wicked or evil. Kidner says it this way, the most spicy gossip has power over the listener only insofar as he is himself a, quote, evildoer from this verse in Proverbs and a walking falsehood or a liar. That actual word there for liar is falsehood. So it's the idea of a walking lie, a living, breathing lie. Insofar as he is himself an evildoer and a walking falsehood in whom the taste for carrion can overpower the love of truth. You guys know what carrion is? Yeah. Carrion is dead and putrefying flesh. Vultures live chiefly on carrion. That's a vivid word that Kidner used. But he's making the point that, you know what, even, even words can't compel you to believe what is not true. You have to be open and willing to receive falsehood and lies. You yourself have to be an evildoer or a walking falsehood, and you have to have a taste for that kind of putrefaction and decaying flesh is the image that he gives you. Because words in and of themselves cannot compel. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the will. So, think about this for a moment. You have these two different dichotomies that are set up here. On one hand, Proverbs teaches us that words are powerful. They are indeed powerful. They have life and death in them, in a sense. But they are not all-powerful. They have limitations. And understanding both is what produces greater wisdom in the use of words, in the effective use of our words, whether it's words that we're thinking about or words that we're speaking, that we understand that our words can be like the thrust of a sword, or they can be words that bring healing that our words can incite anger or kind words can turn away wrath. But ultimately, our words are not all-powerful, and if there's resistance to instruction, resistance to counsel, resistance to wisdom, resistance to the Word of God, that resistance is going to keep a person from responding to the truth that's being conveyed. Words can revive and encourage, or they can wound and destroy. You need to see both as possibilities. Our words can enlighten and instruct, or they can deceive and mislead. Words can be used to praise and to curse. But they have weaknesses because they're no substitute for actual deeds. They cannot alter what is true, and they cannot compel 
a response from someone, no matter how well they're spoken. Next week, we'll look at words at their best. This is a really neat section in the outline, highlighting in Proverbs how when words are at their best, this is what they look like. This is what they sound like. So we'll look at that next week. Any final thoughts before we close in prayer? I'm dismissed.